As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. On today's episode of The Dose, Jessica Tracy, professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, where we talk about the emotion pride. You know, it is, I think, a really nice example of how when we're not meeting the kind of needs we have for identity to really kind of fulfill who we are, who we really want to be at the highest levels that we can and want to, there is something that we feel is missing. And we do all kinds of things to try to feel, fill that hole. And it might be, oh, I'm going to get as many accolades as I can from other people. I'm going to get a lot of praise. Or it could be something more destructive, like, you know, drugs or alcohol. It could be a lot of different things. But the key thing is that what we really want is to figure out who we are and, and who we want to be, and then find a way to do that and feel pride in that. And then that's going to be the authentic kind of pride. Hey, welcome to The Dose, a show dedicated to deep and engaging conversations, highlighting individuals that are in the pursuit of authentic and courageous leadership who approach life with insatiable curiosity, bold action, and common sense in these divisive and uncommon times. It's my hope you take something away from each and every one of these conversations and apply it to your own life as we all intentionally attempt to become the best we can possibly be by living out our purpose and calling, committing to a life of service, and helping make this place better than we found it. It's great to have Jessica Tracy on the show today, a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, where she also directs the Emotion and Self Lab. Her research focuses on emotions and emotion expression, and especially on the self-conscious emotions of pride and shame, which is what we talk about here today. I read her book called Take Pride, a hardcover version. It's called Take Pride, Why the Deadliest Sin Holds the Secret to Human Success. They re-released this as a soft cover, and it's a different color and a different title, but it's the same book. And so if you're searching for this, you may find it. It's called Pride, The Secret of Success. It's a red cover, and the one I read was a hard cover called Take Pride, which is a white cover. So it's the same book, different title, kind of confusing. I thought she had two books out there, but as she talks about in this conversation, there's just the one. But either way, it's a fantastic book, however you get your hands on it talking about this kind of misaligned emotion called pride. I know for myself, I always looked at pride as something to avoid. It has a dark, hubristic side, right? That's well known. But in this conversation, Jessica talks about how pride is also essential for helping us become our best and brightest selves. I think it's something I intuitively knew, but it's something I kind of avoided because of that kind of way our culture looks at pride. But if you think about this, if we care about how, other, how others see us and how we see ourselves, then pride can make us strive for excellence, as long as, it, as it's in the right doses in the right context, right? Great conversation, guys. You'll get a lot out of this. This is your dose of pride. you got to learn about it. It's going to help you become a better person. So here's the conversation 
with Jessica Tracy. You know, this topic, your book's great, by the way. Well, I read Take Pride. I didn't read Pride, The Secret of Success, but I've read Take Pride. and I finished. It's the same book. Oh, it's, it's the same just, book? It's just they retitled different. it for oh, paperback. Okay. Sometimes they do that for various reasons. So I, I prefer the hardcover title. So you read the better version. Okay, but. good. Well, I was, because, yeah, it was weird because when I was, I was like, wait, is yeah. there two books? And then, okay, yeah, good. I know it's super confusing. I, I wish they wouldn't do it that way, but I guess they think it sells better in paperback with a shorter title or oh, something. I guess. I okay, see. Yeah, I like the Take Pride one. But anyway, awesome job i love yeah. the book love it Thank you. Um, so much i guess a lot of the stuff what well, sometimes the the mark of a great book is kind of like when you read it and you're like oh yeah i know that right mm-hmm. but you didn't know it right it's like the common <laughs> sense thing kind of slaps you in the face that's what to me reading your book was a lot like it kind of validated a lot of things i guess though kind of the the wake up or the kind of the aha moment or the thing that i really appreciated was I guess I kind of knew there were two prides, but I guess I really kind of always operated in the fact that pride was bad, that the hubris was right. Mm. And so I needed to avoid it at all costs. So that was, that was kind of the eye-opening thing for me. What do you think when you hear me say that? Well, it's just, it's super interesting because I do think it's a very common response to not realize, I guess, that pride, there really are two different ways of feeling pride mm-hmm. and you hear both sides of it, right? So there are a lot of people who say exactly what you said, which is no pride is bad. I always thought it was bad. You also hear people who say, oh, right. There's this bad side of pride. I think of pride as this great thing, right? Like, you know, feeling pride in my children is the best. You know, right. I work hard because I want to feel pride in myself. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it, you know, there's cultural differences in all this, um, you know, I think Americans in general tend to be more oriented to or sort of uh, willing to accept the good pride compared to people from certain other cultures where the bad pride is much of a more of a kind of big thing, culturally speaking, that um, Asian cultures yeah, in particular. Asia, I was going to say Asia yeah, is kind of yeah, like where yeah, it's really bad to be prideful, right? In, exactly. In, in, so they sort of think of hubristic pride as, as the more common pride, like like what you were saying you did. But yeah, no, I mean, our research shows that people feel this emotion in two very different ways. And you know, depending on which way you feel it really affects your psychology and, and your social behavior and all kinds of things in, in very different ways. Well, it was refreshing. It, it, I, it kind of identified, I guess, some of my own personal behavior when I think about, I, I remember just always kind of having, I guess you would call it ambition. I always called it a gnawing. Like there's this mm-hmm. gnawing, well, there's got to be something more. Yeah. I'm still on the fence sometimes if that, I not even on the fence. I think that I know it can be good and it can be bad. And I realize that everything kind of in life has this, it's almost like the way the world or nature works, the universe mm-hmm. works, right? So for every characteristic emotion or trait that we have, there's a good side and a bad side. So why would it be any different for pride? I guess, again, mm-hmm. something that I, that, that I kind of took away when I read this. That's interesting. Right? I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of like, do you use the power for good or do you use it for evil? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's definitely one way to think about it. I do think it's actually almost two different emotional experiences. So Mm -hmm. not so much as sort of like, I mean, you know, it's true. Once you sort of get thinking about it, you can be like, oh yeah, well there's angry where you're in a rage and you're out of control. Mm -hmm. And then there's sort of like righteous anger, like fighting for your rights or fighting for the rights of others. And, and, you know, you kind of need anger to go out and march for justice and that sort of thing. At the same time, I'm not sure it's quite as different, those two kinds of anger as what we're talking about here, where really, you know, the feelings people report are very different the kinds of people who tend to experience authentic pride are very different from the kinds of That's people true. who tend to experience authentic pride. Yes. Um, you know, and so, so I think there are, you know, 
this sort of gets into like one of these sort of semantic kind of what is an emotion debate that I try to stay away from because mm -hmm. I, you know, sort of think to some extent it doesn't matter all that much where you draw these boundaries. But some would say, oh, well, it's the same emotion because it both there is sort of a core thing that's similar to it. You know, in both cases, it's about the self. It's about feeling good about the self. Um, we found that people show the same nonverbal expression and identify the same nonverbal expression as associated with both kinds of pride. So to that extent, it, it is the same emotion. It's one emotion. On the other hand, you might say, well, no, it's it's two different emotions that have a lot in common, that share that share certain things and certainly have very similar evolutionary origins. And that's sort of how I always think about things is where do they come from? Yeah, uh, which I really appreciated, particularly the first few chapters of the book where, yeah, and I'm not really, a, a, I, I can geek out on the kind of the science, the evolutionary side yeah. of it. I'm not a biologist yeah. by nature, but it was really fun to kind of deep dive or watch how you deep dove or even kind of approached it. I guess I was surprised to learn that kind of regular thought was, I guess if I didn't know any better intuitively, I would have thought that pride that you feel is a universal thing, that it's kind of in the genomes, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you do a really good job of kind of explaining, well, let's let's ask that question. Let's see, is it something that's universal first and foremost? And then, and if it is universal, can it evolve or can it, can, can you change it? It's very interesting. And I, the, what are the, um, I forget the guy's name, Eric, Eric uh, who came up with the six. Oh, Ekman. Yeah. Ekman. Oh, I was going to say Erkman for some reason, but Ekman, <laughs> they had these six, you know, he went into, what was it in the sixties? He went to some. Yeah, late 60s, he went to Papua New Guinea. Yeah. yeah. And he he did this really cool research where he basically brought facial expressions of emotion from, you know, Americans mostly, showed them to these people who at that point had no, you know, most of them had really never seen yeah. a Westerner, um, you know, this really kind of remote tribal area. And sure enough, they recognized the same emotion expressions as the same emotions that we Westerners do. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the first evidence that, oh, emotions are a human universal. They're not something that every culture makes up and develops on their own. At the time, that was a huge kind of shift in understanding, right? Because prior to that point, you know, the sort of constructivist view is very prominent that people really create their own emotions. That's not the case, um, at least for those six. And then, you know, in my work, we found that pride fits that model as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we went to Burkina Faso, which not quite Papua New Guinea, but still a pretty, pretty remote place in West Africa and, and worked with uh, a group of people living in a tiny little village in the middle of nowhere, showed them uh, the pride expression. And, and yeah, they, they said pride, they got it. I recognize so. it. And I really appreciate it. Well, first, I guess I was surprised that up to that point that people thought that these emotions were culturally taught and it, but I think, yeah. well, what, you know, if you see a smile, everybody smiles right and those those are one of the six that he said but the Absolutely. pride but the pride thing right gets weird or or not weird but it gets kind of dicey because there's not a what is the facial expression that comes up with right. pride and you go into that and what i really what really sold it on me was when you did the research on or there was research done on the um olympians who were blind and then you yeah and that was my work yeah yeah and you and you took the congenital someone who was congenitally blind that never had seen a facial expression in their life. Mm -hmm. And when they won, the six that won and the six that lost, they both, they, mm -hmm. they shoulders got broader, chest puffed out, yeah. right? All those things. That is so cool. Yeah, you, you remember, you read carefully, you got the details down with the numbers even. Yeah, no, yeah. totally. We had this, I mean, we were lucky that we had a very small sample, but at least we did have 
enough people to look at it uh, who are congenitally blind and who are winners and losers. And yeah, you compare them and you, you and, and I mean, the beautiful thing is you can do it statistically and you get the effects. You can also just look at the photos and looking at the yeah. photos, it's like, oh yeah, that's the pride expression, which you're right. It's not just the face. So there's a smile um, and that's, that's part of it, but that doesn't look any different than happiness, really. The key thing that differentiates pride is yeah, what, what you just did, the chest, chest yeah. back, shoulders back, head right. tilts up, expansive posture. That really is the, the key thing to the signal. Yeah. So yeah. that must have been a great moment, really. Okay. Yeah. This is kind of all this hard. I mean, to me, that kind of puts the, the, the T, crosses the dots the I, <laughs> crosses the T for me, or puts the period on it anyway, the exclamation yeah. point. Right. Yeah. No, I felt that way too. And, and I mean, that purely was, you know, my collaborator on that project is a, this guy, David Matsumoto. He's a great researcher at San Francisco State University. And he happens to coach judo at a really high level. So he has a good friend who was a photographer at the Olympics. And basically, he just came up to me at a conference and was sort of like, hey, I have all these CDs of uh, the Olympics and the Paralympics where they're blind athletes, if you're interested. And I was like, oh, yeah. So, you know, sometimes data falls into your lap kind yeah, of literally. Right. And that was one of those moments. That's but, cool. Yeah. So, okay. So we, we've kind of established now that at least I'm convinced that, yeah, this is just something that's been coded in this over, over all this millions of years, right? So, mm -hmm. but, but then I started thinking, well, why is this so important for us from an evolutionary standpoint? Because, I mean, I suppose chimpanzees do it, but you kind of talk about it. it Maybe it's like bluffing is kind of their mm -hmm. deal, right? And it's not so much pride. Am I hitting that right? I, did I? Yeah. Right? So I mean, there's no there's no clear evidence for a pride display in chimps or other great apes besides humans. And you know, with those animals, we have to look for nonverbal behavior because, of course, we can't just ask them, "Are you feeling right. pride?" Um, and right. So what they do do, it seems, you know, based on the work I've read from primatologists is they do this thing called the bluff display, which is basically looks a lot like pride. I mean, really, mm -hmm. if you look at it sort of like, okay, that, well, if a chimp was going to do the human pride display, that's, that's what they, they stand up on their hind legs and they look big and they do that kind of prior to an aggressive encounter, like right before a fight, basically. So mm -hmm. rather than, you know, for us, we show pride after we've had a success or one, right? Those athletes in the Olympics, they were doing it after it was judo. So right after the judo match um, in the chimps, it seems like they do it kind of before. And so it's, it's almost sort of like an intimidation display. Yeah. Um, and I think the pride expression can work that way as well in humans, but that's not, you know, so like there's examples of um, that famous rugby team in New Zealand, the all blacks, and they do this elaborate yeah. dance mm -hmm. to intimidate, which has a lot of features of pride displays in it. Mm -hmm. So I think there's uh there's certain cultural elements that different, you know, countries, nations, societies have kind of taken from the pride display and built to use in an intimidating kind of way. I don't think that's the same as our sort of spontaneous, the thing we break out into after success. But I think that's sort of how evolution has worked that, you know, for various reasons having to do with the fact that we have a much more complex sense of self than a great ape, like a chimpanzee, um, we experience pride after the event. Yeah. We then show that to others. And then that in turn is going to get us higher status. People who see us show pride right. automatically come to see us as high status. And, and I've done a bunch of studies to show that as well. And then in turn, they, they treat us differently, right? And sort of that's to answer your question, why is it evolved? Having high status is just enormously beneficial from an adaptive perspective. The, the highest status group members are the ones who get all the good resources and um, sure. all that. So, yeah. Well, which leads to the crux though. And, and particularly when I talk about leadership in here, and on this show, and it's been kind of my passion is like, well, well, let me even back up. I, I when I went in the Marine Corps, I'm an introvert, right? And I I went in and I went to 
what you would consider a pretty or the ones that seem to be successful, the ones that seem to stand out were these kind of type A or this hubris, right? Like, mm. like you were rewarded almost for hubris. Mm. At least I thought. And then as I, as I get into it and I tried to be that, but it wasn't authentically me. I'm more of the, you know, kind of reserved and, and like, I like doing this one-on-one -on -one with you as opposed to me standing. And I, I'm better at it now, but if I'm a networking event, I'm mush, right? I don't like being... Yeah. And so, which is kind of odd when you're in the Marine Corps because you've got to display these, what I consider these, these large command presence type qualities. And my viewed command presence as kind of this large external hubris type, right? Right. Where you exhibit a lot of pride and it right. seemed to be. Right. But as I learned, as I worked though, I found a lot of leaders who had what I consider, what I define as command presence. And it really wasn't the charismatic qualities that was kind of more of the, what I call composed being composed mm -hmm. in stressful situations, being consistent, mm -hmm. you know, being compassionate. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, there was a mm -hmm. lot of love there in the Marine Corps that a lot of people don't get to experience. They don't see it. Interesting. Yeah. And so that, that presence was there. So yes, I think in the short term, I saw a lot of, particularly in the six month infantry school that I had to go to, that all of us had to go to before I went to flight school. And they mm -hmm. did this kind of, um, they called them peer evaluations. We call them spear evaluations. They did it three times in that six month period, every two months. And where you would get ranked by your peers. Wow. And it was interesting because of my introversion. Um, and I'm sorry, this is so long, but I'm I'm interested no, to see how you respond to this. But yeah. so when I got ranked in the first two months, I was down near the bottom and the ones that were at the top were these, you know, the larger yeah. than life. The aggressive. Sure. Yeah. As the six months went on and you, you spent six months with these people, put in very stressful situations with not a lot, particularly at the end where it culminates in this kind of 11-day war, what they call it, wow. where, where you don't get a lot of sleep and you eat what, one meal a day, a Maria a day. And it was amazing by the – a lot of those people who were at the top in the first two months, at the uh -huh. end you saw them break under pressure. They were overcompensating and, and this and that. And then yeah. – so when I got ranked at the end, I really went from like the third from the bottom. I went to the second from the top. Wow. Interesting. And, huh. I, and I wrote a paper on that. And anyway, there's – I th and the reason why I'm telling you this long story is just because I think there's there's a lot of pride or elements of pride in that, in that story. Mm -hmm. What do you think when you hear me tell that story? Well, so that's just fascinating because the first thing that reminds me of actually is there's a famous study, um, at least famous among people who study things like self-enhancement and narcissism. Um, done by uh, one of my colleagues who's just retiring, Del Paulus, a number of years ago, it was published in 1998, where he basically had groups of undergraduates meet kind of together every week for, I don't know, a period of a few months. And they had some job to do. I forget what it was. But basically, it was sort of like, let me look at how groups develop, how groups form, how people rate each other. And he did the same thing where he had every week, everyone had to rate everyone else on a bunch of kind of traits. Um, and what he found is the people who scored high on a measure of narcissism, which is basically just sort of like, you know, this, ex, you know, exaggerated, it's hubristic pride, essentially. Do you right. think you're great? Do you think you're better than others? Do you think the world would be a better place if you ruled it? That's kind of one of the items on the scale. Those people in the beginning, everyone loved them, right? They got kind of the really positive ratings from everyone. And, you know, it sort of makes sense because when no one knows each other, the people who really stand out are the people who are willing to speak up, take charge, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of want someone to do that, right? Because it's right. awkward. It is. I don't want to have to do that. So if he does it, fantastic. But those people are, you know, it's kind of what you said. They're overclaiming. They're they're saying things they can't back up when it comes down to it, right? They're they're um, 
presenting a presence that their actual skills and competence and so on might not really hold up. And they're also annoying, right? As you get to know them more, mm-hmm. no one likes someone who brags all the time, right? Those people are really kind of disliked. And, and even, you know, in groups, a leader who's like that, you often have people who want to kind of take them down because gosh, we don't want a leader who's just bragging and thinks they're so great and better than everyone else. And so that's exactly what Dell found by the end of the study, those people who are high in narcissism, who'd been highly liked at first, were the least well-liked by the end of it, um, which is, you know, consistent with, with what you're saying that, you know, it sort of pays in the beginning to be narcissistic and high in hubristic pride, mm-hmm. but over the long term, it really costs, costs friendships and relationships, essentially. You do a really good job in the book of, I, I really appreciated the the kind of in, the deep dive on narcissism. It mm-hmm. got me really, you know, we're talking a lot about a lot of stuff that you talk about in the book. And is it, well, and we look at, 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 I guess at politicians, which it seems like almost everybody has levels of narcissism. But let's talk mm-hmm. about let's talk about the the two recent. Let's talk about obviously Donald Trump, huge narcissist, right? No denying that. I mean, kind of off the charts, right? Off the so, charts, yeah, totally yeah. off the charts. Yeah. And then, would you consider Obama a narcissist? You know, it's funny. No, in my, I mean. So one thing I would say is to be to run for president of the United States, you yeah, kind of you have got... to be a bit narcissistic, right? I mean, yes. That's even no matter how no matter how great you actually are to think that you could actually be the most powerful <laughs> person in the true. world, you know. So so to some extent, anyone who runs president is a bit narcissistic. Kind of a requirement, but right? Yeah. It's sort of a requirement, yeah. But I think the two of them are an interesting comparison. I actually made this comparison in the book yeah. because I think Obama really nicely, whatever whatever he feels inside, at least in terms of his public appearance and, and the way he presents himself really nicely demonstrates what I mean when I talk about authentic pride, right? Where he clearly feels good about himself. He's got high self-esteem. You know, he takes credit for things he deserves credit for. He's not going to sort of hide behind the shadows. He's not going to be introverted. He's going to come out and have a presence. But he also makes sure to do all the things that are really critical to making sure you don't come off in that sort of self-enhancing bragging way. So he always gives credit to the other people who also deserve credit for every one of his accomplishments. Um, He speaks in we terms instead of I terms. You know, he is self-deprecating when it's appropriate. You know, he sort of makes in his his way, he's kind of funny. So he'll make jokes about himself that are a bit self-deprecating. Yeah. Um, and all those things help ensure that people like him and, you know, see him as someone who is, you know, proudful, prideful, right? He's he's high in status and he deserves it. He has tremendous amount of accomplishments and he's gonna get the credit he deserves and the status he deserves for them, but not someone like Trump who is taking more credit than he actually deserves, who gives himself credit for things he didn't actually accomplish, who kind of makes sure to never give credit to anyone else. Um, so he's sort of, and, and who directly puts down other people, right? So those right. are kind of the key things that really differentiate these two kinds of pride. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I guess before Trump came on the stage and we only knew Trump as kind of the celebrity Trump business guy, Trump. And when yeah. I would watch Obama, I, you're right. But I, I think even then, I thought, oh, he's he's narcissistic. He seems mm-hmm. like he has a ch- sometimes he has a chip on his shoulder. But you're right, though, and I think I think I was maybe looking at it with a probably a, a biased lens because just you know take take my political things. I don't want to talk about politics. I'm just talking about the, the man himself. But you're yeah. right, and you gave a great example in the book where he gave the the speech, and I remember that watching it live when yeah. he came out and talked yeah. about the, yeah. the, the Osama bin Laden getting killed and you're right and i want my president to kind of you're right and i think that's a great example of authentic pride where Mm -hmm. and i tried to 
as I read that in your book and I tried to think, what? That's interesting because what would Trump would have done if it would have been the same thing? I think we would have had mm -hmm. a different outcome. Yeah, no, I think so too. I mean, I think, yeah, that speech was a great example of exactly what I'm saying, where, you know, mm -hmm. the first thing he says, look, we did this. I'm going to make sure there's going to be a huge press conference. This is a huge, you know, win. It was kind of the first big win for his his administration. Right. So, you know, he needed to take the credit for that to get the status boost that, you know, any president would want to get from something like that. But then he did make sure, look, let's thank the military. Let's thank, uh, you know, my advisors. Let's thank the American people, all that stuff. And that's really, I think, kind of the crucial thing. And, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> obviously Trump didn't have a big success like that. Um, and, and the comparison I gave in the book was when he talked about getting Obama's birth certificate. And it, it kind of is a nice comparison just because it happened literally two weeks after. Um, know, so right? you have the same time frame. And, he, you know, his quotes were exactly the opposite where he sort of said, he literally says, I did this, no one else did it, you know, so it's like the opposite kind of thing. And so we can only assume that, yes, if he'd had a massive victory, like, you know, the assassination of bin Laden, he probably also would have taken a lot more credit for it um, because that's that's what narcissists do. Right. They don't want to share the credit with others. Well, and I think it, it's it's always and I tell my kids this, too, when we see kind of this narcissistic behavior. I got two. My I have had four daughters. My last two are in high school. Well, one one's in college now, the last one in high school. And we have these conversations about these people that stand out. And I say, well, look, you know, they're overcompensating for mm. some lack, right? Anytime yeah. a narcissist totally does that, it's coming from a place of lack. It's never coming from yeah. a place of abundance, right? And, yeah. and you detail that, not necessarily in those words, but I love, that's what I loved about when you're talking about it. Okay. It just reinforces that, that it's coming from a place of lack. And if you, as a receiver, it kind of, to me, it disarms that kind of larger than life kind of dysfunctional personality when I come across mm. it in real life, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's funny, that's, that's the example I thought of when you said earlier that I said things in the book that you're sort of like intuitively you think you know, mm -hmm. but you've never kind of read the science behind it or whatever. I think that's a great example of that where mm -hmm. I remember when I was a kid too, my mom would say the same thing to me. She'd say, oh, you know, the reason they're being a jerk is because they feel insecure. And it's, it's so counterintuitive. Right. It's like, wait, why, why are they, they, they're acting like they're really great. They're insecure. But, but yes, I think that's absolutely the case that people who are behaving these really grandiose, exaggerated, inflated self ways, they're not doing it because they actually believe that stuff about themselves. If they really did, they wouldn't have to do that. They that's wouldn't right. have to bully others, you know? And so it really is coming from this sort of, oh gosh, I'm so nervous. This isn't true. I'm so nervous about the shame that I need to hide. So I'm going to use this kind of self-aggrandizement in order to cover that up. You you just said something, you, and I can't, I'm paraphrasing. I wish I had the exact words that you had in the book, but it was about that, that when you see somebody doing that, they're not, they're not doing it to make, to feel good about themselves. Right. They're doing it to avoid the shame. That yeah, exactly. is, is it, yeah. I think it's more than a distinction without a difference. It's a very subtle, but very powerful difference, right? I mean, it's just oh, yeah. huge. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's the thing. And that's sort of why it's so critical. That's why, you know, narcissists, it's almost like a compulsion. They have to do yeah, this. Right. Because shame is just the worst, right? It's it's the most painful emotion to experience. No, in our culture and other cultures, it's, it's different. But in Western culture, we've really made it this horribly uncomfortable, you know, difficult, really painful experience. People go to great lengths to avoid shame, to avoid feeling it, to bury it, to hide it. And narcissists, the way that they've found that, you know, works for them is essentially to convince themselves and everyone else that they are the greatest, that they are, you know, the best person in the room. But the idea there is, you know, if that, if that view gets punctured at all, they're in big trouble. Cause it's not just like, oh, oh, okay. I'm not the best in the room. I'm just sort of second best. That's all right. It's, oh my gosh, I am horrible. You know, all the shame sort of comes up. 
See, I love all this because I think that if people were armed with that knowledge, I think it, it it's the that's how you deal with kind of the dysfunction that we see in the world, right? Because mm-hmm. once I know that, once I'm armed with everything that you just told me there, I can almost look at this person. I can look at this person with with empathy and compassion, as opposed oh, yeah. to like saying this person's a total ass, right? Absolutely, totally. Well, I mean, I think you know, I think it's useful. So many contexts, right? One way of coping with shame is various forms of addiction. Alcoholism mm-hmm. is super abundant among people who feel a lot of shame. When you realize that, you know, alcoholics often behave in ways that are just, you know, really horribly painful to, for the people around right. them. Mm-hmm. But if you can sort of see it as, oh, well, this is something that they've done in order to cope with their horrible feelings of shame, it's really easy to feel empathy. You know? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, Trump, it's, it's you know, you never want to fully analyze someone who you haven't met, but, you know, he's an interesting case where, his money, you know, the thing that he was successful for was being this really successful businessman. That was what he was known for. But his money originally all came from his father, right. you know, and so that sort of sets up this issue where you have a reputation for being incredibly successful and making all this money that's not actually true, which is sort of like the perfect, you know, situation to set up someone to feel a lot of hidden shame, right? I better not let anyone know that I didn't really make this myself, you know, or I better, you know, and so you can sort of imagine, okay, well, that's going to lead someone to really need to overcompensate. I see. I totally see that. You're right. Yeah. And, and how different would he be if he was this kind of rags to riches guy that didn't, right? right? It, he probably Absolutely. would be different. Because you're right. When you talk about in the book, when we have authentic pride, when we feel these things, we don't do that. We have no need to kind of, in fact, we're, we're kind of this we turn to this humble, everybody that's displaying authentic pride has this humble, teachable spirit about them, right? This kind yep. of humble, teachable presence about them. Like, oh mm-hmm. gosh, but it feels good. I mean, I, I think about those times and we've all experienced both, right? I've, I've experienced hubris and I've experienced yep. the authentic pride. I certainly try to embrace the authentic pride. You're right. It feels good when you stand up there and you get acknowledged for your hard work. And that's what's so great about your book that like, hey, let's stop. Let's, let's, and I guess where I say using the powers for good, it's a more comp. It's it's not black and white as use the powers for good versus evil. But man, we've got to embrace those moments because you're right. And I started telling you this in the beginning. I think my ambition or that gnawing that I always had mm-hmm. is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be no. if I do yeah. some. And I had, and I did. I when I lost my job, I was telling you before in the recording when I was a pilot, and I lost that job. Yeah. I was, and I thought I identified as a pilot. Mm-hmm. And when it was taken away, I overcompensated and, and worked harder. I got a lot of accolades mm-hmm. working in the corporate arena, but I was kind of ignore. I was ignoring my home life. And I was because of my, it was more hubris. And I wouldn't say hubris in the sense that I wasn't trying to, I said, I, feel, I didn't feel better than anybody else, but I had a lot of um, doubts and insecurity and I overcompensated right. by, and I was attracted to where the people were telling me are great. It was, I'd go to mm-hmm. work and everybody tell me how a wonder kid I was mm-hmm. and you're going to be great. And I go home and I couldn't, I wasn't very mm-hmm. good at that with, with a wife with four young kids and a couple kids mm-hmm. were kind of difficult. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I justified, Hey, I'm working my ass off. I'm working 60, 70 weeks where everybody's telling me I'm great. Yeah. My wife's going, but you're not here. I need you yeah. here. Right. Yeah. And it was that hubris pride that yeah. made me say to her, what are you talking about? I'm busting my ass here for you in this family. No, I wasn't. Yeah. I was feeding my ego. Right. 
Exactly. No, that's a great example. It's a really interesting story. Yeah. I mean, one thing I talk about in the book is uh, Dean Karnazes, who's known as the mm-hmm. ultramarathon man. I highly recommend his his book. It's, you know, kind of an easy light read, but it's fun because I mean, the thing is he, he kind of tells exactly the same story where as a young person, he was really into running and being outdoors and cycling and all this stuff. And then various things happen and led him to kind of end up doing sort of typical, you know, um, corporate life businessman and did that and was successful. And same kind of thing. I think it was feeding his ego in a way that gave him something, but not the real thing he wanted. Right. And he was unhappy. He was dissatisfied. His marriage was falling apart. I mean, all the same things. And then, you know, he tells this great story of how on his 30th birthday, he goes out with friends to a bar. His wife goes home early. He gets really drunk. He, um, meets a woman and is flirting with her, you know, and you can see this heading in exactly, mm-hmm. you know, the direction that kind of ends up hurting his life. Instead, he leaves the bar, goes home, puts on a pair of running shoes that he hasn't used in like 10 years and just starts running. And he tells this amazing story how he hasn't run in 10 years. And then he runs 30 miles down the coast of, of uh, California. Yeah. And and that's what makes him realize, okay, this is what I need to be doing. Right. And he changes his entire life around after that. And, you know, it is, I think, a really nice example of how when we're not meeting the kind of needs we have for identity to really kind of fulfill who we are, who we really want to be at the highest levels that we can and want to, there is something that we feel is missing. And we do all kinds of things to try to fill fill that hole. And it might be, oh, I'm going to get as many accolades as I can from other people. I'm going to get a lot of praise, or it could be something more destructive, like, you know, drugs or alcohol could be a lot of different things. Um, But the key thing is that what we really want is to figure out who we are and, and who we want to be and then find a way to do that and feel pride in that. And then that's going to be the authentic kind of pride. Right. Because that type of pride, that authentic pride can produce some amazing, yep. amazing results. I mean, that's how we get the ama- everything that's, that's amazing around us for the most part. However, yeah, true. Right. Yeah, was hard, However, some of the great things that we've had yeah. has come through that, the bad side of pride too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? And that's, sure. and that's what you talk about too. And so it's like, okay, I mean, you, uh, to me, the one that sticks out is like, you look at Steve Jobs, I've studied him yeah. and how he led. And I'm like, God, oh, what an asshole. Why is he such <laughs> a jerk? You yeah. know, yeah. But then at the same, you could, and I remember I get in an argument with the guy I worked with, the CEO, and he and I were kind of oil and water and we got into kind of a big argument over this lunch. And it was when his book had just come out shortly after he passed away. Mm. And and he goes, we wouldn't have all this stuff if you wouldn't that way. And I was arguing but I think you can get there without being that way. And so yeah. I, I don't know what the, the right answer is, right? I mean, you can't. Right. Well, I mean, that's interesting because it sort of gets into this issue of leadership. So Jobs is a good example, I think, of someone who, so I talk about prestige and dominance mm-hmm. as these two kinds of leadership that really map onto authentic and hubristic pride. Dominance is sort of the intimidating, aggressive mm-hmm. leader that Steve Jobs had a reputation for being uh, where people follow you because they're afraid of you. Prestige is more people who who really are admired for various skills and, and lead by example and people follow them because they want to learn from them and think that they're kind of good for the group. You know, and Steve Jobs was remarkably creative and had this amazing sensibility and sort of, you know, knew exactly what was going to work and what wasn't going to work and, and was absolutely a genius in that way. That said, you know, I think Apple wouldn't be Apple if it wasn't for, you know, his partner, right? Who was the tech guy, Waziak, right? So, right. you know, you have to keep that in mind as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think that like, it's really interesting. Yes, he created amazing things. He also was ousted from Apple eventually. That's right. You know, and so there's got to be a way to do that, to create the amazing things and not have people hate you and want to get rid of you. <laughs> right. That's and, the argument. And so, you know, if he, if he'd been prestigious and not dominant, 
it, it's impossible to say whether Apple would be as successful, but certainly he probably would have been better liked. Yeah. Well, and he evolved too after he came back in his That's know, right. Steve Jobs yeah, part, part Steve Jobs part two was different than the initial Steve Jobs. Let's let's, let's give yeah. him some credit on that. And he did evolve. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, for so sure. So how have you changed by going through all of this stuff? I mean, did, what did, did you learn anything about yourself and has it helped you kind of how you kind of attack life? That's an interesting question. You know, I think, I think that, um, you know, I start off the book actually by talking about what got me back into grad school. Cause I'm one of those people who took a few years between undergrad and grad school mostly because I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do. Wanted to li- I knew I wanted to live in San Francisco and hang out of it. And that was kind of, I'll just do that and we'll see where it goes. And really I credit the thing that got me to go back to grad school when I did is essentially that, that gnawing feeling that I yeah. knew, Oh wait, I am not, I'm not doing the thing I need to do to feel good about myself, you know? And, and, and that's what said, okay, I got to go. And then as soon as I ended up in grad school, it was like, Oh wow, this is great. You know, I'm having failures all the time, but also I'm having successes all the time. And, you know, I'm working towards something that feels important. It feels good when I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I feel really motivated. And, and I think we all crave that, you know? And I think it's interesting. I think no matter what your job is, what your career is, you go through periods where you're, you're missing that for one reason or another, right? Everyone's got lulls. And I think it's hard, right? For those of us whose identity is wrapped up in our career, when you're having a lull, it can be really, you know, challenging, mm-hmm. right? And I think I think that's the time when, you know, and some people handle it in a really positive way where they say, okay, I'm going to look into my career and think, what's the next challenge I can take? What's the next promotion I'll go for? What's, what's the next way I can make this job exciting again? Um, other people handle it by saying, you know what, my job is what it is right now. I'm going to find something else to kind of fulfill me in that way. And, and I've always wanted to take a photography class, or I've always wanted to run a marathon or, you know what, right now I'm getting a lot of pride out of my children. So I'm going to devote time to that. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm definitely one of those people who much of my identity comes from my career. And so, you know, when those lulls happen and they happen in academia all the time, right. Sure. It's sort of like, you know, sort of the way it works. Um, that's always been a stress for me is sort of like, oh gosh, if I don't have, what's my next big thing, if I don't have that, it, you know, sends me into a flurry of anxiety. And I think, um, thinking about this stuff and, and then really the COVID situation in many ways was a real kind of blessing for me because so when, when we were in lockdown, um, my daughter was, uh, 11, she's now 12 and, you know, so there was, we actually were really lucky here where they went back to school quite quickly, mm-hmm. but there was a three month period where she was home from school. And, you know, I'm the, I was the easily, I work at home mom, especially as a professor, no problem. So she would hang out with me and basically every day uh, she would work out with me. I, I had a little home gym CrossFit situation and we would do it together. And then I would make her lunch. And, you know, I know that the me of several years prior would have been like, oh my God, I'm losing so much time. I could be working, spending time with my daughter. And the me that was, (laughs) the me that existed in COVID actually not, there was not one minute where I felt that every single day. I thought I'm going to look back on this and think how lucky am I that when my daughter was in grade five, I got to have lunch and work out with her every day for a period of three months. Like who gets to experience that, you know? And so I think that's the kind of thing that lesson that we can, we can take from this stuff, I think. For love, me anyway. I love that answer. You're right. And I think the, the great reset of COVID, if we, if we embrace, you know, that, that kind of change that was thrust upon all of us, it, it can, it can produce, and you're right. And we all know a lot of us, a lot of people around us who kind of experienced the blessings of COVID, if we can say that yeah. without, 
without being disrespectful of I know Ted, it's right? hard to see that knowing how harmful and horrible it's been for so many people and just what a tragedy it's been so I you know I, I absolutely don't want to disregard that yeah and, 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 and I don't mean to but you know what I mean by that there's always yeah. we're all it's something we all have to deal with mm-hmm. but what do we do now and I think yeah. listening to those what what I think the, the great or the power that can come out of of the stuff that's in your book or the lessons from your book is that, that, that gnawing that you get. I kind of, you ever, have you ever read Stephen Pressfield before you, you're familiar with him? He did, a, no. he's done a lot of historical fiction. I've, ta- I've people have heard me talking about him on the show a lot, but he wrote, he's wrote a lot of historical fiction and I came across him in the Marine Corps. a lot of mandatory reading because a lot of leadership lessons there, but he wrote the legend of Bagger Vance was that's what kind of what he was known for for commercial that you know that movie mm-hmm. that he wrote that book and I've heard it yeah I didn't see it but I've heard of it but he wrote a book called The War of Art which was originally sent, meant for writers and mm. c- creatives because his whole thing was that he always wanted to be a writer it mm. was that gnawing it was that mm. the angels the muse the universe whatever you want to say put that on his heart which creates that gnawing or like okay there's yeah. something there's got to be something more it's kind of the same thing that as you write in your book, Paul Gagan probably right, was feeling right. led Absolutely. him to leave the business world and become a starving artist. Yep. And it was for him, and he went through a period of, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a truck driver. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do that. And then two divorces later, he goes up and he locks himself in a cabin in the woods with no outside, and he writes his first book. Never got published, but that that was kind of the, the moment where he kind of listened to the gnawing and authentic pride kind of these are my words authentic pride began to kind of take over his 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 world right and that wow. his point kind of dealing with and so when i read your stuff and i and I've kind of married this together his whole idea is like look you need to listen to that calling or gnawing or whatever that comes from something that's important to you and the and when you do set about to do it you're going to get a lot of resistance like you know you're here and you're trying to go to a higher moral plane or financial plane or some higher plane like it doesn't work backwards so you're here and you want to go you know solve go work with bill gates and create you know toilets don't lose any water right that's a that's a higher calling than working as a cashier at wendy's right nothing against cashiers at wendy's but i mean yeah there's going to be a lot of resistance to do that like the universe is going Mm -hmm. to like the resistance is going to try to stop you but if you continue to do the do the work the universe has to move and then that's to me i'm thrusting in the authentic pride thing that you talk about here that's that's what can give you the juice can give you the go-go juice to continue in the face of that kind of resistance again this is just me kind of riffing and thinking about it but that's how i think kind of using your the power Mm -hmm. of what you wrote in your book it's kind of like Mm that to me is the that gives me a lot of energy to 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 battle mm-hmm. resistance. I don't know if you ever heard of it in that way, but that's that's how I my oh, takeaway yeah. from reading your book, it gives me it gives me arrows in my quiver to deal to deal with resistance. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you know it relates to a section of the book where I talk about grit, this this concept Angela Duckworth mm-hmm. came up with. Right. Where basically it's sort of describing people much like that who have to overcome all kinds of obstacles and just persist, persist, persist. And they're the people who are the most successful. Um and yeah, I sort of relate that to authentic pride, that it's the same idea that you have to have something inside this real clear understanding of what your goal is, how to get there and a willingness to say, okay, it's going to be hard. It's going to be terrible at times, but I'm going to keep doing it 
because I want to get there, that's going to make me myself in some way that I really want to be. Because it's always about the tenacity, right? It's so less mm -hmm. about the talent yeah. and more about the tenacity, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like, you know, you see that in just, I'm sure you see that in your work. I see that with grad students, you mm -hmm. know, the ones, the ones who come in with amazing GREs and all this stuff. Some of them are great, but that is not the strongest predictor. You know, it's the ones who have that fire and are like, I'm going to work till midnight every night because I want to get this paper published. And, you know, that's really the key thing. So. Yeah. And the fuel is the authentic pride piece, right? Oh, absolutely. To, to say yeah. that, gosh, and I, I just thought about this too, as we we're talking and I, I looked at my time in the corporate arena and working and having these arguments with people about like what motivated people and, and I remember I was in this argument. With, I, I always seem to get in arguments with CEOs. I mean, I was always like arguing with CEOs. But the guy I worked for, and he, again, another oil and water guy. This is different from the other oil and water guy. But he was, we were talking about, I was at a hotel company, and we, we were, we had property managers at each hotel, and it was an extended stay hotel, and it didn't have um, a lot of employees there. And the entry for this property manager wasn't a lot. The salary mm -hmm. was not very high. Mm -hmm. And the turnover was very high. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he goes, what are we going to do? Do you got any ideas? And I said, well, you can, you can start off by paying him more. Is that an option? Not an, he goes, not an option. You got to do something else. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I said, then you've got to like, you've got to make these people feel like they're part of something unique and special that bigger than themselves. And you've mm -hmm. got to tap into this kind of emotional that they're, they're, they're oh, yeah. there because they need, they want to, they want to be part of something special. Yeah. He goes, nah, it's a hotel. I said, it doesn't matter. I said, lives are at stake here. I mean, you still totally. can create something unique. I mean, I don't care if it's a rental car company or you're yeah. making bird feeders or you're in the Marine Corps. That's why the mm -hmm. Marine Corps, you know, that's what a lot of people don't get is that people don't join the Marine Corps. A lot of people are not in it. They're like, oh, you need money for college or there's no other options. The vast majority of people join. I know that's why I joined is because I wanted to be part of something bigger than my, than me. Yeah. And the Marine Corps does a very good job from a marketing perspective of making you feel like, hey, you're you're doing something that no one else can do. Yeah, it has that sense of, I mean, I, I know very little about this stuff. And even I know that it's different than just sort of joining the army or whatever. It's like a high level elite, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And so, so you yeah. feel, and that's what, and it, it, but it's the authentic pride piece. Right. And when that was taken, and so that's, I know when I was away from it, I'm like, ah. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting in the, the boardroom, literally watching people argue if this bird feeder should be yellow or red. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. And I, and I kind of arrogantly said, this is dumb. But I kind of got, I talked to my boss, my, and I, who was a part owner of the company. And one of the fans, I told him that. And I was like, hey, I was in the Marine Corps. I did this. And he's like, hey, he goes, I got 300 lives at stake out there that we need to make sure that this bird feeder is the right color. Huh. So kind of check yourself and, and I started, and I started looking at life that way. It's like, oh yeah, you're yeah, right. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's true. I mean, I think that's the thing with the hotels. You can, you can care about anything. And yeah. so the key is, you know, find a way to care or find a way to, to get the people who work with you to care. It's cause that's the difference between that. There was my hubris, my hubris pride yeah. of like yeah. focusing on, look what I accomplished. Right. I was a pilot exactly. and I was an officer in the Marine Corps. You weren't, that's really what yeah. I was saying. And that right. this arguing about bird feeders is beneath me that's right then the authentic pride is like hey let's let's try to get this sale because this is important for all the families that are exactly. under this to keep this building going yeah yeah no exactly yeah sorry yeah. i feel like i just i'm telling you all these stories but i just 
No, it's interesting. It's really interesting. It's it's. I like I like hearing that stuff I said in the book resonated with you. That's great to hear. Yeah, it re- it really did, and it and it. I walked away with it going, yeah, you know, I don't need to be so afraid of pride, and I think I was mm-hmm. afraid of pride because of because I've seen the dark side of, and it and it almost led to the dissolution of my marriage. I mean, just to be frank, oh, yeah. And, totally. Yeah. But I've seen from that splat moment this rebuilding where. I am comfortable with who you talk about that in the book about the self-awareness mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. And when you are happy with yourself, it's a whole different world. Absolutely. And Absolutely. my behavior before on the outside, it might not see a lot of difference. Like if you didn't know me, you, you yeah. wouldn't have thought, well, you didn't, you're not acting that much difference, but internally I'm completely yeah. different. And it's because, oh, and it's of, huge. Yeah. because of what you talk, the difference between the, the bad side of pride and the good side. Exactly. Well, and that was a big thing that motivated me too, is because, you know, even, you know, you look at things like, um, like the Dalai Lama says pride is bad, you know, and, and every religion basically has said that. Pride and with, the problem the, is the fall, what's you know, the Bible say the pride, you know, yeah, pride goes before the fall. fall. I mean, yeah, hubristic pride. Great. But, but the message that, that they're giving people is do not feel proud in your accomplishments. And I just think that's a horrible message because you're right. if you don't feel proud of your accomplishments, why, why would you bother accomplishing things? Right. It's sort of, that is what motivates us. It's what drives us to do our best and it's okay to feel good about it. What's not okay is then letting it turn into that hubris, right. That's and there's right. ways that you can stop that happening. So. Yeah. I love it. So fun. Great job on the book. I mean, it's just, oh, thank you so I, much. Re- I really recommend it to, to everyone. I think it's oh, so good. so Thank good. You. Did we talk about everything that that? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I feel like we covered a lot of stuff. It's been yeah, totally. How can yeah. people learn? Uh, the book is "Take Pride: Why the Deadliest Sin Holds a Secret to Human Success," or the new title, "Pride: The <laughs> or, Secret of yeah. the Pride: The Secret of Success," which is the paperback version with the red yeah. red one. But you, right. but I like same exact book, same different exact title, book. and cheaper if you go paperback. So you know, go for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's always, always my recommendation. <laughs> So money. how can people connect with you, learn more about you? Um, so my, I, I work at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and um, Canada. And so I have a website there if you want to check out the kinds of stuff we do in my lab. Um, it's UBC dash, just like a straight line across uh, emotionlab.ca. And um, I'm on Twitter, Prof Jess Tracy. Um, yeah. I'll include links to all this in the show notes. So fun. Thank you for Yeah, this is great. I feel like I'm, I'm a better person because I spent this time with you. Thank you for, for all <laughs> that really you're sweet. doing. Thank you for the book. And, and um, gosh, so fun. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. Well, my thoughts on this, I really learned a lot in this conversation. I think for myself, as it was revealed, if you listen to me, is you know how I always kind of throughout my life looked at pride in a negative way because it affected my life in a negative way. I mean, it, you know, me focusing on, you know, that gnawing that was inside of me and I still have it, but not being afraid of it now. Back then, I saw how kind of pursuing that gnawing in a kind of a hubristic prideful way, filling it up um, with kind of the, the self-destruction, deception, um, hiding my shame, it's important to understand that a lot of times these people who, who are doing the bad pride, they're not doing so because they're trying to make themselves better. They're trying to hide the shame. And that certainly was my story. That resonated with me. I don't know what you guys felt about that, but that was what was kind of eye-opening to me. I think intuitively, instinctively, I always knew that there was good pride. But again, I was always kind of taught or in my mind that to chase 
pride was a bad thing. I love how she says, look, there's, we've got to embrace the authentic pride. The authentic pride, it's in us. It's in our genome. We've evolved this way. It can be a force of good. Just like everything, right? Anger can be a force of good. It can also be a force of evil. Love can be a force of good. Love can be a force. Of... Everything kind of has a yin and a yang. And that's kind of my takeaway on this. I want to know what you think about this show. Reach out to me. Send me an email at richard.doseofleadership.com and go check out doseofleadership.com. But go explore. There's 500 episodes to look through. It's a good place to start. And if you're finding value, share this with somebody. That's the whole point. That's how we can grow this, this show. Share it with somebody. If you found some value in this concept about pride, share it with a friend, a neighbor, a family member. Hey, thanks for tuning in to The Dose. I really do appreciate it. And I look forward to connecting with you again on another episode of The Dose. Go take some action and make the place better than you found it. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.